the San Francisco Experience Podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 23, Episode 17, Enterprise China, Adopting a Competitive Strategy for Business Success, talking with co-author, Professor of Global Management, Alan Morrison. Our guest today is Alan Morrison, professor at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Arizona State University. He joins us from his office in Phoenix, Arizona. Hello, Alan, and welcome to the show. Hey, Jim, it's good to be here. Alan, please take a few moments to tell us about your work at Thunderbird and your biography. Well, I'd be happy to. I'm professor of global management here at Thunderbird School of Global Management, one of the top schools in the world in international and global management issues. I previously was a professor at INSEAD in um, Singapore and in France, and also uh, the head of the CEO center and a professor at IMD a Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland. I've also been a visiting professor twice at two different universities in China and have taught and worked in over 75 countries around the world. This book, uh, Enterprise China, is near and dear to me. And when I, I came to Thunderbird as the CEO and director general of the school, and after finishing that a stint in academic administration, th- this was the book that I always wanted to write on uh, competing in and with China. Uh, so China has been a topic of great interest to me, having spent much of my professional career consulting, advising companies, uh, teaching Chinese students in Chinese enterprises and Western enterprises trying to figure out how to do business in China. Well, what prompted you to write Enterprise China and how is the Chinese business and economic model different from the U.S. model? And of course, before I, I let you answer that question, I have to mention that uh, from November 11th through the 17th here in San Francisco, we'll be hosting APEC, the Asia Pacific Economy and Cooperation Conference. And we're going to have President Biden, who will be hosting President Xi. So right. chi- so China will be full and center at that conference. But again, I don't, don't mean to interrupt. What prompted you to write Enterprise China? Well, I hope they have that meeting, actually. I'm, I'm confident they will. And maybe President Biden will, will listen in on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, so what prompted me to this interest in China? So. I've been interested in China my entire professional year, professional career, which is more than 32, 33 years uh, long now. One of my first visits as a professor was to China, Tiananmen Square, writing about the Kentucky Fried Chicken KFC in China and how the first Western fast food companies set up operations in China and, and got out as they declared, or just after they declared martial law in Beijing. So... I've always been quite uh, interested and fascinated with China, mostly uh, more recently by their astronomical success uh, on almost every dimension, their growth, their prosperity, the transformation of the Chinese people, and also curious by the lack of deep understanding of many Western companies of what's happening in China from not only an awareness uh, perspective, but just politically savvy. We have a lot of Western business who are quite naive about what's happening in China and and their trajectory. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, when we think of China, we think both of the public sector, 
what, what's right. known as the state-owned enterprise. We also think of the private sector, and we think of companies like Alibaba, Tencent, right. Huawei, among others. Right. And a statistic that really jumped out at me when I was getting ready for the show was the, the skewing of wealth in China. And we have to remember and never forget that China is a communist country. However, this one statistic really shocked me. 1% of the Chinese population owns 30% of the wealth through their ownership of large companies. So with that said, Alan, what are your thoughts about the rise of this, this mm -hmm. huge private sector and we can get on to talking about skewing of wealth a little bit later on, but th this right. this huge private sector in China, and and how does the state interface with that private sector? So that's a great question with a lot of different answers to that question, as you would expect. Uh, I think the, a good starting point to understanding China's economic success and 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 quite frankly where its where its future risks lie are in understanding the kind of historical context of China, the world's largest economy for many centuries, uh, known as the Middle Kingdom, a great source of uh, innovation, uh, technology, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Chinese fell under Western domination for over a century, whether it was the British or the, the, the Japanese. And so it kind of decimated the Chinese after the revolution, kind of plodded along and yet had an ambition to regain its position as the as the middle kingdom they did that by rolling out a three a strategic plan with three different pillars and these pillars make a lot of sense and the first is they wanted to eliminate their dependency on on foreign companies foreign mm -hmm. technology the second is once they did that they wanted chinese companies to dominate domestically and the third was to go out with through those companies and win globally. So those are the three strategic pillars. They've been at it for 30 years with great discipline and with great success. One of the instruments in these pillars are corporations. And again, as you mentioned, largely two types of organizations, state enterprises, state-owned enterprises, and uh, state-influenced enterprises. It might be surprising to the audience that uh, of the state enterprises, only a little less than 100 are actually owned by Beijing. 150,000 of them are owned by provincial and municipal governments. The vast majority are owned by cities and states, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now, these state influence enterprises, so you mentioned the, the Huawei's, the Alibaba's of the world. That we call these state influence enterprises because... And as we looked at the largest companies in China, every one of these, and in fact, our research even on middle company, middle-sized companies, we could not find a single example of, of those companies that did not have some percentage of state ownership, 100% from our research. Mm -hmm. Now, when I say state ownership, I mean 3%, 7%. It might not be at the corporate level. It may be in one of the divisions. But there is a state ownership component of every one of these companies. In addition, any company over 50 employees must employ full-time a representative of the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. They're on site. They have an office. In addition, 
to this ownership and the, basically the union boss down the hall. In addition, they're heavily influenced by state policies and regulation and, and favor. So, for example, uh, one company I was associated with, uh, they wanted to build a factory. If you want to build a factory, the local municipality will give you the land, will manage all of the infrastructure. They will assist. They won't manage all of the training. They will assist in training. They will give you a five-year abatement on taxes. But for that, they want a 7% equity ownership. And so, uh, and if you don't go along with that, you're, you're free to not go along with that. But, but good luck. Mm-hmm. Good luck. And not only joining up with the state, even though they're a minority owner, they open up the whole ecosystem to you. They, make, uh, they, they facilitate with financing with the, the financial institutions. They, they facilitate uh, for those who are interested in exports to get export permits of various licenses, et cetera, et cetera. So you're free to not use the state, uh, but you know, very few organizations w- would say, uh, w- would challenge that. And they mm-hmm. would say, look, you know, of course we're happy to have you uh, take a 7% or 12% or 4% uh, ownership position in the company. Again, most of these are municipal and and provincial organizations. They are not Beijing mm-hmm. that's taking equity position. Let's just recap with the three pillars that you you mentioned early on, talking right. about number one, eliminate external dependency. Number two, right. dominate uh, Chinese companies must dominate domestically. I think the target right. there is at least 70% market share. And number three, to win globally over right. uh, over whoever right. is uh, dominant globally to right. win globally. Now, there are three initiatives that uh, that support those pillars. One is the Made in China Initiative of 2025, China Standards 2035, and the Belt and Road Initiative. Could you tell us about those three initiatives? Because it's those initiatives that are really implementing the pillars, aren't they? Yeah, so first off, just to clarify on dominating domestically, the Chinese state has identified targeted industries. Not they don't they, they do not insist on dominating all industries, but they do insist on dominating the technology intensive industries. And in fact, they've targeted these. Uh, we, we we refer to these as the industries central to the fourth industrial revolution. So things like new energy vehicles or biopharma, uh, machine tools, advanced rail, new materials, and, and each of those industries can be fairly broadly defined with sub-industries. In those sectors, China has specified that roughly 70% of the production will be provided by Chinese firms. In some cases, electric vehicles, it's 80%. New energy, it's 90%. So if you're a company, Western company, in these industries in China, your days are, I won't say numbered that they're going to kick you out of the country, but you will be squeezed and squeezed and squeezed to your a and also ran in the industry. Now there are other industries they care less about, but that does not mean that you're not going to get broadsided by increasingly competitive Chinese firms. The government won't regulate the ownership percentage, but they are encouraging the rise of very sophisticated Chinese companies who are great, like in luxury goods, with branding, with quality, with service, Mm -hmm. with payment systems, with distribution. So you may have had easy days in the 80s and 90s, 
you are going to be increasingly challenged in China, in some cases through regulatory pressures, but also just through great competition. Now, you mentioned these these kind of, if you will, if the strategy are these three pillars, there's mm-hmm. a number of tax underneath them. One is, and just to be clear about this, the Chinese have been very, very smart about the strategy and about the tactics. Very internally consistent, what they're promoting. It, in, it includes, and you mentioned these, the, these specifically, but it also includes encouragement for joint venture partnerships, and in some cases mandated, so that they can borrow the technology from the, the, the Western companies. So there's a lot under there. You, now, you mentioned MIC, Made in China 2025. So, uh, th- as I mentioned, these are these industries that uh, have been targeted. The uh, Belt Road Initiative. So th- this is designed to push China out into the markets, often but not exclusively developing countries. There's over 100 countries in the world now that have received, that have participated in Belt and Road. And so the, the China, China typically goes to these countries and says, we're going to build a port for you or a road or freeway or a rail line, whatever it is. And they will use Chinese companies, Chinese workers, Chinese finance. It's kind of almost extraterritorial for the Chinese. The locals are desperate for the investment, but they end up with massive debts, no jobs or few jobs for the local workers. And uh, threats that if they don't pay the Chinese back, the Chinese will move in and take control. Now, I think the record on Belt Road has not been good for China. Chinese. In fact, I know they, they're in the process of revising their approach to Belt and Road, but it is very consistent with helping Chinese go out and win globally. You also mentioned standards, the uh, standards uh, 245. So, so the, the uh, 235, the idea here is that China wants to set standards. So we have, uh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of standards in the world, everything from the size of light sockets to electrical plugs to ball bearings and wheels to every industry has you know thousands of standards i i imagine and to the degree china can determine what those standards are the rest of the world will be dependent on china and chinese companies to set the tone to set to become the leaders in those industries they're finding their success in setting standards to be not as good as they would have liked and, and China has to be very careful of how hard they push on the standards. Mm-hmm. Let's come back to that third pillar, to win globally. Of course, right. the United States, under the Biden administration, has made it very clear that we are going to follow more restrictive policies when it comes to sharing high-tech technology with the Chinese, and in particular, the, the super chips, which right. where, where we have a, a certain advantage. Does China see that policy as directly attacking the win globally pillar of its long-term strategy? Are they, which which clearly it is. I mean, it's focused on the technology industry, and it's it's essentially the United States saying you're not going to get the cutting yeah. edge technology that we have, and we're going to prevail on our allies, Japan, right. Netherlands, etc to not share right. that technology with you either. How do the, how do the Chinese, we, we know the Chinese are not happy about that. 
How are the China, and of course, that it is one of their three pillars. What is going on in the corridors of power in Beijing about this attack on the the key global pillar to win globally with right. a pushback from the United States? How do you think the, uh, the the Chinese economic ministers are going to deal with that and try to overcome it? So first off, to make sure the listeners understand the context of this, when we we talked about made in China and these targeted industries, again, fourth industrial revolution, high tech, dependent on microprocessors and advanced microprocessors. So how is China going to go out where in what industries are going to go out and win globally? They, they don't want this to be in, you know, they're leading the world in basic manufacturing, you know, selling filing cabinets mm-hmm. and, and cheap children's toys that. They want to go out and win globally in the standard setting high tech industries. So when you cut off the supply of uh, advanced microprocessors to them, those industries cannot go out and win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and there's a ripple effect. So the Chinese, by most estimates, are between four and five generations behind the Taiwanese, the Americans in um, in, in microprocessors. So. And, and the other thing that's been cut off are the uh, the equipment to, to build these chips. Mm-hmm. So is this devastating to the Chinese? It absolutely is. What it means for the Chinese is, is that they end up with second-generation products. So and th- these can be great products, and they can move up, you know, uh, move, move up the food chain, and they can dominate in those kind of technologies that are now three, five, seven years old. They can dominate and, and blow, go global from there. What that means from a, from their strategy perspective is those products are still going to be acceptable and interesting in emerging markets, mm-hmm. but not in the Western markets. So you'll find China increasingly selling products in Africa, in, in the Indian subcontinent, parts of Asia, Latin America, where advanced western products the market is not yet arrived the market has arrived for these second generation uh, chinese products so i think the chinese are going to make significant inroads as they try to dominate uh, glo- or win globally in these emerging markets now where do they move from there well my my guess is what they're trying to do is to um, create their own uh, chip technologies we just saw Huawei introduce brand, a brand new mm-hmm. uh, piece of equipment that was su- surprised everyone by how far they'd move with the, you know, how many, because I think state of the art is now four nano chip processors. And I, I think they were coming in at seven, uh, mm-hmm. which is pretty good, surprised everyone. So I think the Chinese are going to work like crazy to buy, borrow and build the technology that they, that they need. I, I think it, it, we're, they're not there yet. They're going to try to, uh, push it into emerging markets very aggressively. And then uh, if the West doesn't get its act together, there'll be slippage on all these, you know, basically trade restrictions on technology and the Chinese will back integrate. And I'm not sure where we're going to be five years from now. Mm-hmm. Probably not where we are today. Let's come back to the Chinese entrepreneurs who have been the driving force in building this very powerful private sector right. economy in China. Now, we, we've seen, for instance, we saw Jack Ma, who was the founder right. of, uh, of Alibaba, when he was mildly critical of the regime, he was right. slapped down, he disappeared for a time, etc. 
we've seen other leading uh, entrepreneurs who have left China and who are, are setting up companies and manufacturing facilities abroad. I'm thinking in particular of Mexico, uh, Monterey, right. Mexico. Mexico, of course, has now surpassed China as the largest single exported to the United States. But contributing to that huge surge in Mexican exports to the United States are Chinese national companies that have been assembled and set up in Monterey, Mexico, along the border with Texas and the United States, to take advantage of the uh, the U.S. Mexico Canada trade agreement. Talk to me about that. I mean, it, it looks as though it looks as though China, in a sense, is kind of getting in the back door into you know with those with those Mexican maquiladoras. I, I would kind of. Um untangle that a little bit and first talk about Chinese entrepreneurs. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Jack Ma, for example, and it's important to refresh people's memories that, you know, Alibaba's market cap peaked at about $665 billion. Jack Ma had a net worth uh, its height of 60 or $50 billion. Mm-hmm. They were, he was ready to launch this IPO of Ant Financial, $315 billion market a cap that was what they thought it would it would launch at uh, bigger than the combination of a, companies like Goldman Sachs, Barclays, Credit Suisse, and so on. This was going to be huge, and you're right. He spoke he spoke out. Uh, he disappeared, but not only did did he disappear. That by the way, the stock has now plummeted in value. But many, as you mentioned, other entrepreneurs have faded, have quit have receded into anonymity as best they can. This has resulted in a loss in market cap of U.S.-listed Chinese companies of, of, depending on the estimate, but about $750 billion in lost Mm. market cap. There has been a major suppression of entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial spirit in China. Now, separate issue, which is what we we call a China plus one strategy. So if the Chinese uh, are going to be blocked from exporting from China, then let's uh, let the Chinese are going to say, let's diversify our production. So they're moving to to, to Malaysia. They're moving to Indonesia. They're moving to uh, to Mexico, as you as you mentioned. These are still the same Chinese companies. They're just rebranded. And uh, if we can't, if the if the Americans will prevent us from shipping from China, they'll they'll allow us to ship from from Mexico. They're legally they're legally registered in Mexico. They use Mexican labor and there you go. We have uh, free trade and et cetera, et cetera. So the Chinese are very smart. There's workarounds. Yeah, I, but we're seeing this throughout, particularly Southeast Asia's supply chains are diversifying. And companies, Western companies are part of this with their China plus one diversification strategy. Surprising to many American companies is that their partner that they thought they were diversifying into in, in Vietnam, for example, is half owned by the Chinese partner that they had back in Shanghai. This, this is uh, this is one of the things you you discover when you're interviewing these uh, Western executives is that they're actually not diversifying as much as they thought they were. Mm-hmm. With President Xi coming to the APEC summit here in San Francisco, starting. Uh November 11th through the 17th. What do you think is on his agenda with President Biden? Uh, realistically, what do you think his goals are in that meeting with President Biden? Uh, I would, uh, my educated guess, you know, is that 
His message will be, we are not a threat. Why don't you open up? The U.S. needs a global trade. You need us. Stop being so racist and paranoid. I think that's what his message is going to be. Mm-hmm. And to be uh, clear about this, I, I think China has boxed itself into a pretty tough corner. They, they have emphasized politics over economics, and mm-hmm. now they're paying a price for that with the economy uh, slowing. Estimates are growth will be maybe 4% this year, 2.5% next year. That decline of the entrepreneurial spirit, the additional regulations, the, the China plus one diversification, the lack of success of Chinese companies overseas, this, this, is, all, this is all taking a bite out of China. And, I ha- and I'm sure that she is very aware of that. Now, whether at the end of the day he will you know, uh, change course somewhat, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Thus far, he is not. Thus far, he's been concerned that loosening up means uh, additional political uh, uh, threats to him. Well, Alan, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about your book, Enterprise China? Well, uh, the book has been v- very well received. Uh, its its target is not the Chinese. Its target is Western business leaders who are struggling to figure out what to do in China. It's in many cases the world's largest market and in other cases the world's second largest market. How do we approach that market? And then how do we deal and manage our relations with Chinese companies, which are increasingly setting up shop in our backyard or across the border in the Macchiadora zone of Mexico? So that the focus has been on helping those companies. And I think one of the takeaways is in the past we could we could accept the, the trade-off of, um, and we, we believe that if we brought Western prosperity to China, that would be accompanied by uh, liberalism in the in the politics, and eventually that the, this would lead to the demise or, or the decline of the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. That was the grand bargain we made, and and that that has not paid off. Mm-hmm. And so it's taken forty years for the West to figure that that's not going to happen. And so what do we do about that now? We're at an inflection point. And so the book is really focused on what business leaders can do to prepare and respond, take advantage. China has many, many weaknesses. And so how, how to position yourself in, the, in this environment going into the next decade. Alan, where can our listeners buy a copy of Enterprise China? Well, first off, it is, uh, and thank you for asking, it's available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and & Noble and so on. But you can go to the website for the book. It's very easy to remember, uh, www.enterprisechina.com. And there's links through there, also some ex- some you know snippets of the book and reviews and all kinds of stuff. Contact, contact information is also there. If they'd like to get a hold of me, I'd be delighted to continue the dialogue. EnterpriseChina.com. And Alan, how can our listeners contact you? Well, there's a link through the website, but I'd be very happy to hear from you. My email address is A-L-L-E-N dot M-O-R-R-I-S-O-N at A-S-U dot E-D-U. And what about a, an X handle? An X handle? I, <laughs> I am not on X. You're not on X. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm deliberately not on X. We'll just leave it at that. Oh, okay. But you do use LinkedIn, right? So that's a... I do use LinkedIn, yeah. Okay, very good. Well, Alan, once again, thank you for joining us. I think that um, you know, for, for the CEOs who are going to be attending APEC, 
the uh, your your book, Enterprise China, I think should be top of mind and should be at the the top of their reading list as they get ready for their for the CEO confab that starts on the fourteenth of November. Again, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. And for our listeners, today's episode is number four hundred and sixty four. The San Francisco Experience podcast is carried on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, eighteen platforms with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot recently recognized us as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. 